If you have your Bible, you can open up there in the seat Bibles. That's page 53. This morning we continue our series on the two themes which weave their way through the scriptures, the themes of covenant and kingdom. And again, I'll be drawing on uh, a book and some other materials by that name this morning as we continue this series. We've looked at Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham. We've looked at his grandson Jacob and Jacob's sons and how one son in particular from this covenant family, Joseph, came to have incredible kingdom influence. And now, uh, last Sunday and this morning, we fast forward to the descendants of Jacob and Jacob's sons. Remember, Joseph had brought his family down to Egypt to escape a famine. And in Egypt, that family of Jacob grew and grew for 400 years. And that's where we pick up the story now. And this morning, we'll see how covenant and kingdom continue to weave together in the story of God working things out with this family. Because here's the thing, one of the central images of the Bible to God's people is this. We have a father and we have a king. We, we have a father, we have a parent who has invited us into a committed family covenantal relationship. And we have a king, we have a leader who's invited us to join in the plans, his plans, God's plans to redeem and to restore this world. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you have an identity found in God that makes you a child of God. And once you're part of God's family, God's kingdom becomes your concern. You, you think of Princess Kate. Once she married into the royal family, she then now has certain responsibilities to represent the British kingdom. So when you become a child of God, likewise, it makes you a representative and an ambassador, even in, sense of, in a sense a soldier for God's kingdom, tasked with extending its frontiers. So out of kingdom comes peace, or out of covenant, sorry, out of covenant comes peace, peace with God, peace with one another, and out of kingdom comes war. Not a violent war, but rather a spiritual battle in which God's truth and God's love set the captives free. And so as we continue the biblical story this morning, as we look at the life of Moses, we see these twin strands of covenant and kingdom, this biblical DNA, continue to spiral and intertwine. Moses, the, the, one of the great figures of the Old Testament, uh, we'll see, was both a man of covenant and a man of kingdom. Moses was born into a time of terrible tyranny. The Egyptians have, have grown afraid of, of the size and the multiplying power of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites who were living among them. And so the Egyptian pharaoh embarked on a policy of infanticide, murdering the Israelite baby boys. He's also enslaved the Israelites. And so Egypt at this point in time is an oppressive kingdom. It's an anti-God kingdom. It's trying to snuff out the kingdom influence that God could extend through his kingdom family. Moses' courageous parents, though, rescue him from this infanticide. If you know the story, baby Moses is floating in a basket, right, on the Nile River among the bulrushes. And Miriam, his sister, is watching over him. And then she sends the news to their parents that the Egyptian princess found Moses in the river and has taken him in. And, and remarkably, Moses is then raised in the palace of Pharaoh as a prince. 
He's no doubt cultivated in all the great things of the culture of that day, the very center of world power. He's given the best of opportunities, the best of education. And as Moses grows, he begins to realize that in contrast to the the freedom and the authority that he's been raised in, the people he's related to by blood and by heritage are being abused. And so one day Moses kills an Egyptian who's abusing one of his people. And, And now Moses has to escape, and he escapes to the desert. This is going to be a very new and distant, or a different season in Moses' life, a distant season too. And, and spiritual writers and, and thinkers have long recognized what Cher shared with us this morning about tooth decay, and, and, but they've recognized it from the communion pattern where Jesus takes bread and blesses it and then breaks it and gives it. Um, and that this is also true of our experience as God's people. That God takes us, God chooses us to be his own, and and then God blesses us, but then here's the the scraping out of the tooth decay, God allows us to be broken, and then God gives us, God uses us, filling us with his spirit. God takes us as his own, he takes us to be his own covenant people, and God blesses us, and then in that blessing we find that God calls us to, to a season of brokenness. And then out of that brokenness comes a usable person that God can give for his kingdom purposes. We saw that process in the life of Joseph a few weeks back, right? And we see it now also with Moses. Taken, blessed, broken, and given. And so as Moses flees into the desert, he's now going to enter a season of brokenness. In the desert, a region called Midian, he, he finds a wife, he has some kids, and he looks after the sheep of his new father-in-law, uh, Jethro. And here's Moses, once having owned everything his heart desired in the palace, and now Moses doesn't even own the sheep he's looking after. He's in the desert. And what we find in the Bible is that the reality and the symbol of the desert is woven throughout the scriptures that God takes his people to desert places to teach them to be dependent on God, to strip away their distractions, to wake them up to their apathy and lukewarmness, to to quiet all the noise in their souls so they can again hear that still small voice of God. And as Moses is in the desert, he wanders far off to the far side. And there Moses finds the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Mountains often in scripture are are places where God meets with people. And, And there in the desert, Moses meets with the living God. And God comes to Moses in fire. And the fire is so obviously fire, and yet it's not consuming the bush that it's burning in. And the Lord speaks to Moses out of the fire and says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. You are standing in a place that is holy ground. And then the Lord speaks to Moses about the covenant. God says, I am the God of your fathers. You are the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, and I am their God. That identity comes from me, God is saying. That's who you are. You are part of a family whom I have made a covenant with to be my special people. Moses hears from God that that God is in covenant with him. 
You're mine, God says. And, and then God speaks to Moses these incredible words of good news, these gospel words. This is chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. I have heard the cry of my people. Not the people, but of my people. I am their God and your God, Moses, because I have a covenant with your people and I will remain faithful to it. And now, out of that covenant security, Moses, I am sending you to do the work of my kingdom. This is where Moses moves from broken to given. (laughs) He's being given back to God's people as God's representative to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. And Moses says, not me. (laughs) Anybody else but me. (laughs) Well, God says, what's in your hand? Well, just my shepherd's staff. All right, you have a stick, says the Lord, but now it is the staff of power, my power. Throw it down. So Moses throws it down, and it becomes a snake. And God tells him to pick it up, and he picks it up, and it becomes a stick again. Well, Moses still doesn't want to do it, but it's hard to say no to God and when God has made up his mind. And so when all is said and done, Moses heads back to Egypt as God's covenant son on God's kingdom business. And so Moses goes to confront the rival kingdom to God's kingdom, the kingdom of Pharaoh. And those who know something about the religion of of ancient Egypt tell us that Moses is also confronting the pantheon of gods which stand behind the throne of Egypt. The Nile River, for instance, was worshipped. It was the source of life for the people. It provided water for life and for agriculture in the desert. And everyone was dependent. The civilization was dependent on the Nile, and they worshipped it. And they associated it with some of their gods, with Osiris and with Hapi. And Moses comes to Egypt, and he says, This is what the Lord, the God of the Israelites, says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No. And so with the staff that Moses has, he strikes the Nile, and that life-giving deity begins to die. The river turns to blood. And when you live in the desert and your whole life is dependent on the Nile as a source of water, this has serious ramifications. And living near the river, guess what kinds of animals are common? Not robins and squirrels like we have in the suburbs, but reptiles and frogs and snakes and and lots of insects. Makes sense near a river, right? And, And many of these were associated with Egyptian gods too. For example, the goddess Neket was depicted as having the head of a frog. And so next, frogs team out of the Nile River and then they die all over Egypt. And then there are plagues of insects. And and these are followed by other plagues associated with other gods of of Egypt being defeated. Like the sun god Ra, who at Moses' command stopped shining. And then the death of cattle who were associated with Hathor, the, the goddess depicted as having the head of a cow. And so systematically, God comes against the kingdom of darkness that stands behind the throne of Egypt. The Lord dismantles the the spiritual infrastructure that stands behind the throne of Pharaoh little by little. The kingdom of God marches forward seeking a heart that, that will soften in Pharaoh. But each time Pharaoh hardens his heart until finally the Lord comes to Pharaoh himself through Moses 
and says, since you refuse to let my people go, I'm going straight for the throne now. I'm coming right at you, Pharaoh. I'm taking your firstborn son. Because both Pharaoh and his firstborn son after him were considered gods themselves in Egypt. And God is saying clearly that in the battle against his enemy, he will go to any lengths to set his covenant people free. And so God instructs his people to create a doorway of blood over their houses, echoing maybe the, the corridor of blood we looked at a few weeks ago with Abraham. Wh- whoever enters in, into the gateway of the blood of the lamb over the houses of the Israelite people is covered by God's covenant protection. And so as God releases the angel of death in Egypt, his people, his covenant people are free from its touch. They're safe. And then as they leave the land of Egypt, finally, they plunder their enemies who freely offer them gifts and provisions, just wanting to get rid of them as quickly as possible. And as it turns out later, many of these treasures will be the materials used to make the divine king's special tent, the tabernacle. As God sets up camp in the desert with his people camped around him, and if you read the book of Numbers, the way the Israelites set up camp and the way they march in formation around the tabernacle is as an army would. The the tabernacle was the the tent of the king in the midst of the ranks of his army. And, And at the tabernacle where the king resides, there's smoke and there's fire, right? These, remember, were the the symbols of God's presence when he made his covenant with Abraham, the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch. The smoke, the cloud by day, and and the fire at night. And whenever the pillar of, of cloud moves or the fire moves, it was time for God's covenant people, God's kingdom army to get up and to move too. And that's how God led his people through the desert into the promised land. Back in Egypt, though, the... Back to, to the time of the Exodus, the, the Israelites are, are leaving Egypt and, and, and they come to the Red Sea. And, and the sea in the Old Testament scriptures is often spoken of as a dark and chaotic brooding presence. One, one of, that's impossible to harness, impossible to tame. And, and yet God is able to tame the depths of the sea, to blow it back as the Psalms put it with the breath of his nostrils and to cause his people to walk through on dar- dry ground. And there they receive their baptism in the sea into the new life of God's people. And Miriam takes up her tambourine on the other side and begins to lead the people in celebration and dance for what God has done. And and with that, then fast forward a little bit and we come now to chapter 19, the passage that we read this morning. God has brought his people now through the same process that, that Moses went through. God's people have been taken They've been chosen as special as God's covenant people. They've been blessed. They've been rescued from Egypt, protected during the the Passover, and then sent out with gifts and treasure. As God summarizes it in verse 4, now of chapter 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now they're, they're all in the desert, the place of brokenness where their faith is tested and stretched and grown, where they experience trial and they experience hunger and thirst. And then they come to the mountain of God like Moses did, where, again, God is going to meet them in fire and in smoke. And here God speaks to Moses and and to the people and offers to renew the covenant with them, with all of them. If you will keep my covenant, verse 5, if you will remain faithful to the relationship that we have, then you will be my treasured possession. 
Though the whole earth belongs to me, I will choose you to be special to me above all others, my dearest possession. And you will also be for me a kingdom of priests. Here we see the the kingdom task. What do priests do? Well, they stand in the middle between people and God to mediate the relationship between the two. To, To represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. That's who God's people are in the world. That's what we're to be about in the world around us. A kingdom of priests. And then God says, you'll also be for me a holy nation. Different from all other people. Special. Living as an example of what it looks like when you're family with God. And then for this amazing calling, God gives a framework. Chapter 20. The Ten Commandments. This framework is really a framework of of freedom so they know where blessing and protection and provision can be found. How the relationship that God has initiated with them by God's grace can function in in fullness and in freedom. And, And God's commands are intended, you could say, to be a harness like a baby harness. To, to hold them to the heart of God whom, whom they would know as Father. But the people in, in their foolishness and in their fear and in time turn that baby harness into a straitjacket to, to keep them away from God. So instead of obeying God out of their identity as, as God's treasured possessions and God's special people, the, the, the people come to find their identity in how well they obey. They get it completely backwards. And if we could have the slide um, up here, um, we can illustrate this with a triangle. Uh, the father is at the top. I don't know if you can see that. The father's at the top. A- and the father has invited us in an act of grace into a covenant relationship where we become God's family, God's treasured possession. That's our identity. And then out of that identity down on the right-hand side, which God has given us as a gift, it's it's then that we obey. As God teaches us how to live as his children as a part of his family. And and how to live so we can be a kingdom of of priests who bring blessing to the world. And how to live as a holy nation as examples to the watching world. But if we could have the next slide, what we tend to do is, is we tend to get it backwards. God's people did back then, and and we still tend to today. We're we're tempted to start with obedience to God. And and then we find our our identity in how well we do it obeying. And and so if we fail, we we beat ourselves up and we figure, ah, I'm just a sinner, or I'm I'm a black sheep, or or I'm a wayward child. or we, we, We walk around with a dark spiritual cloud over our head, and we think we're not worthy. Or, or maybe we succeed, and, and then we think we're a little more spiritual than everyone else. That, that we're better than all those other people. That we're special because we obey. No, we were special before we obeyed. We're special because God has invited us into his family to be his treasured possession. Our identity is tied up in who God is. If we're in covenant with God, then we are the children of God. If we could go to the next slide. Because it's because that we're children of God that we recognize that whatever God is, we are. 
And God's the king, and, and, and that means that we have royal blood running through our veins as well. And so as the king's children, we're to be about the business of the kingdom. And so we're a kingdom of priests, we're a royal priesthood, so that we represent God to the world. Theologian uh, J.I. Packer says in his famous book, Knowing God, he says, What is a Christian? The answer could be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his or her father. So question as we close. Do you know God is your father? Or if your upbringing makes the image of father a difficult one for you, do, do you know God is your parents? If not, Jesus Christ came to introduce you to God in this way. To bring you back to God, into his family, so that you can enjoy that kind of covenant relationship. You can ask Jesus to do that for you. And if you do know God in this way, are you secure in your identity as a child of God? Or do you find yourself going around the triangle backwards, trying to obey God to earn what in fact you already have? And if you are secure in your identity as a child of God, then do you realize who your father is, who your parent is? That your father's the king and has taken, blessed, broken, and given his children, like Moses, to be about the business of the kingdom. To be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, representing God to the world and bringing the world to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you're at work doing in this world. That you've been at it for long before we came along. And that even today, you are still faithfully at work, being faithful to your covenant, seeking to extend your good kingdom in the world. And that though we had no reason to expect it, you have invited us to become a part of your family and you've given us purpose in your kingdom. God, I pray that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts, that they would mark and define who we are, how we see ourselves, and that they would motivate how we live in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.